Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, a month after the Marshall Fire devastated two Boulder County communities, we hear how a federal disaster agency is helping survivors. And we learn more about why building projects in one northern Colorado town have ground to a halt. A company is not going to come to severance, uh, for example, if they can't be assured of having access to water. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Today marks one month since flames ripped through Louisville, Superior, and parts of unincorporated Boulder County, destroying more than a thousand homes. One person died and another remains missing. In a press conference earlier this week, Governor Jared Polis shared details on the state and federal response to the Marshall Fire. Federal agencies have provided more than $51 million in grants and loans so far, including from the Small Business Administration and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which has so far approved more than $820,000 in individual assistance. Rosie Beth Ray is the media relations specialist for FEMA. I spoke with her for an update on how they're helping Marshall Fire survivors. I started by asking what the process of applying for FEMA assistance looks like. We encourage everybody to get registered with FEMA. There is because of fire or for the uh, for the winds. There was a, a storm, a windstorm declare also add to this fire. People get damaged because it's a fire or because the winds, also because the debris, uh, the ashes, and all the cleaning is also included in this disaster. So these, these three ways you can get registered with FEMA. And also there's three ways to get registered with FEMA. You can do it online. You can get all this information through our website, which is www.fema.gov. Also, we have a smartphone app for all the circles, which is a um, very, very friendly one. Now, what kind of assistance is FEMA giving other than reimbursing people for lost homes and belongings? There's a couple of programs, but the one that we're really working on it is on the um, rental assistance. So most of these people that lost their homes, we have a rental assistance programs, so we can um, um, relocate them on those other properties that is um, contract from FEMA so we can relocate these families until they get back in track. Um, Also, we have a um, department section, which is mitigation section. And this section um, advise that we have a lot of experts and advisors for the rebuilding and the reconstruction of their homes back. And we have a lot of advice about fire reconstruction resilient that are now in ACE uh, Lumberjard. And also we can follow, you can follow the suspects on the DRCs and the Disaster Recovery Center in Lafayette. How long will FEMA be here in Boulder County helping out? Well, we don't have a deadline at this moment. We are supporting the state all the way. And as this sometimes takes months, sometimes they can take years because it's how the uh, mitigation section get um, on this reconstruction and uh, um, the uh, 
rental pro program is, is a long-term pro program. So we don't have a deadline at this moment. We're going to be here supporting the survivors for the long run to state need us. Now, I understand you've been with FEMA for 15 years. You've responded to many other devastating events, wildfires, but also tornadoes and hurricanes. How do the needs of survivors vary across different disasters? Well, I can tell you every disaster is so different. Doesn't matter if it's the same flooding or same fire, it's very different because the community is different and the necessity of the community is different. Uh, for example, we, are, we here have a Hispanic community, we have Nepalese, and we have Hmong. And, and that makes this community response different because we have another tools to help these people out. And other um, uh, disasters that I have been assistant, we have Russian community and we have Chinese. So it's different that respond and the plan for this response for these people necessities is different every time. How is FEMA working with people and assisting people who uh, who don't primarily speak English? Well, we have a uh, section which is limited English proficiency section, and we have a uh, huge team with a lot of languages that assist all the time. So we have uh, our documents and every language it needs, and we get support from the census department. So they give us uh, the numbers of the uh, communities and the, what community is in the, uh, in the disaster declaration location. What about people who are undocumented? Are they able to get assistance? Well, people that is not that is not a U.S. citizen, but probably they have a green card. We have a, a we have assistance programs for them. Also, when they are not really have all the paperwork online um, line up, we also have a voluntary agencies. We have an avolag section in FEMA that engage with voluntary agency and nonprofit organizations, and we. Um, pointed them to those uh, other organizations so they, they can have other programs to help them out. Right. Well, let me wrap up by asking you, what should someone do if they are still needing FEMA assistance right now? Well, first of all, they have to be um, um, registered with FEMA, which is, is the first step. And um, the, if they uh, do not have paperwork or they, don't, they lost a license and you know, personal documents like passport or other documents at the Disaster Recovery Center in Lafayette. There is a lot of agencies and people that can help you out to get these documents. We can have phone numbers. We can get you connected to all the state's uh, departments so you can get those documents and help you going through this, this uh, um, disaster, going get to your recovery up. Rosybeth Ray is the media relations specialist for FEMA. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for getting this um, information out. The Disaster Recovery Center is going to be open six days a week from Monday to Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the 1755 public road, and we encourage everybody to get there. I know that people have lost their phone, cell phones or cars or everything, you know, what is very important for them. We at the Disaster Recovery Center are open to will and willing to help everybody to get back to the way it was.
Over the past three weeks, we've brought you a series about the Republican River Basin in Northeast Colorado. First, we learned about the crisis that the region, which is a major part of Colorado's agricultural economy, faces as water levels in the streams and grounds disappear. Then we explored the history of interstate agreements and legal battles over water use there. And finally, we heard about efforts to change traditional farming methods to use less water. Now we return to the Republican River's South Fork in southeast Yuma and northern Kit Carson counties. Little to no water flows from it into Kansas and Nebraska, where it merges with the main river. KUNC's Adam Reyes is with us now to talk about a $40 million plan to save the fork. Adam, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you visited the South Fork in Yuma County a few times, and you didn't see any water flowing there. Could you tell why? Kind of. So it's really hard to tell where the South Fork Riverbed is if you're not looking at it on a map. So when I visited it in southeast Yuma, I found silt and a lot of different plants and trees where there should have been flowing water. There's an invasive tree with these gnarled, twisted branches called a Russian olive, and they are all over the South Fork, and they use up a lot of water. But... That growth, those trees, the silt, just helped seal the South Fork's already impending fate. Water in the channel and the ground around it had been disappearing as it gets used for irrigation and the area experiences extended periods without rainfall and higher temperatures due to climate change. So how dramatic of a change is what you saw recently compared to what it used to be, say, 40 or 50 years ago? Between the 1950s to 1970s, the South Fork sent an average of over 30,000 acre-feet of water across the border with Kansas. Since 2000, it rarely hits even 5,000. It's been literally zero some years. There's more to this than numbers. At one point, the South Fork in the attached and now drained Bonnie Reservoir made for a very popular recreational state park, and people in the surrounding community still mourn losing that. We were very sad when they did that, um, <laughs> because we went there all the time. It was, yeah, it was a great reservoir. They had but beautiful we, campground we, over here and water times. recreation. Everybody, I learned how to water ski on Bonnie Reservoir. Everybody in our area did. And a yeah, lot of people from Denver. It just, it's depressing, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, to, to know what we had and what it's turned into now, it, it is very depressing. That was Deb Daniel, Joyce Kettleson, Robin Wiley. Well, tell us about that $40 million plan to restore flows on this fork. Who's behind the effort? So it's mostly a local coalition, including county government and Republican River Water Conservation District. It does have support from the state parks and wildlife, and a lot of the land around the fork is Federal Bureau of Reclamation owned, so any plan will have to involve them. And what exactly do they plan to do? They want to dig up all of the silt, Russian olives, and other trees and plants that have grown into this riverbed to make it easier for what little water remains or rains to flow through. Officials hope doing this will restore the river, maybe even refill the reservoir, and bring back a small but meaningful recreation economy. However, an interstate agreement requiring Colorado to shut down 25,000 irrigated acres around the fork by 2029 is really what drives this project. The hope is if water starts flowing through the South Fork again, Kansas might ease the number of irrigated acres Colorado has to shut down. In fact, officials I spoke to hope Kansas will see enough value in this project 
to pitch in some of its own resources. Well, do we know whether Kansas will actually do any of that? I spoke to Kansas State engineer Earl Lewis about this. Certainly, I think any time you're keeping water flowing through so it it gets down to, to where we want to be, that's valuable. But he notes there isn't much clarity on exactly how valuable it could be. So when it comes to Kansas offering resources for this project... Frankly, I don't see that we're going to spend Kansas dollars to try and try and do that. Will Kansas ease up on the irrigated acre shutdown requirement if the project is successful? Yeah, we're, we're always open to, to ideas, but it's going to have to be a, a really good convincing case that we're going to to uh, to see the benefit in order for us to, to change the course we're on. He notes that there will be a lot of long-term benefits to shutting down those acres for stream flow. Back on the Colorado side, I asked the Republican River Water Conservation District Manager Deb Daniel about his response. I can see where he would be a bit hesitant to give you a a solid answer on that, Mm -hmm. but I am thrilled to hear that he's at least willing to consider it and, and not just be completely close to the idea. The hope is Kansas's answer might change when details are more ironed out, like exactly how much this project will increase flows. But there's a chance that you could, you know, start digging up that that South Fork channel and have the negotiations totally not go in in your way. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's possible that could happen, but the project needs to move forward. Now, does this desire to have Kansas reduce the number of acres that need to be shut down by 2029 mean officials are worried they won't be able to hit that 25,000 acre target? Yes and no. To explain what that means, I want to talk to you about this mini deadline within the larger target. 10,000 of the full 25,000 acres have to be off by 2024. As I covered in our series first story, the fees to use water and the amount of compensation farmers get per acre they stop irrigating have both risen. Between that and the fact that water levels in many irrigation wells have been dropping, confidence in getting all 10,000 acres willingly shut down by the 2024 deadline has risen. Willingly is a key word here. There is less confidence in getting farmers to willingly shut off the remaining 15,000 acres by 2029, because after the first 10,000, irrigated farms will have less competition for their crops, boosting their value. And those farms' wells will last longer because they aren't sharing remaining groundwater with their neighbors as much. So when it comes to stopping irrigation on all of those acres willingly, then yes, there is some concern. However, if that deadline approaches and we do not have enough wells shut down around the South Fork, a 2016 letter from the state engineer's office provides a possible worst-case scenario. Boiling down that letter, let's say it's late 2028 and we are at 23,000 irrigated acres shut down. The state engineer's office does not have the legal authority to randomly pick 2,000 acres to make up the difference. The state engineer also couldn't just shut down the irrigation on farms surrounding the South Fork. Unless, like, Kansas is willing to work out an alternative or the state engineer's rules change, every single one of the basin's irrigated acres from the northern corner of the state to the middle in Kit Carson County would have to be shut down. Otherwise, the river's other two states can drag Colorado into court and try to make it, and ultimately us taxpayers, pay for falling out of compact compliance. So how soon can we expect this project to start? As soon as they get funding, Colorado allocated $15 million to the Republican and Rio Grande River basins in the latest state budget. It's still not clear how those funds will be split between the two basins, but some of that may go toward this. There are other efforts at the state legislature, too, and the Republican River Water Conservation District is seeking out grants. 
Also, Congress allocated $8 billion to Western Water in the infrastructure bill passed last November. That money will get split among a lot of water projects and a lot of rivers and other water features in several states. So locals will have to convince federal officials that this project is worth a piece of that pie. Sounds like there's a lot of waiting to be done then. Adam, thanks so much. My pleasure. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes. You can find more of Adam's reporting on the Republican River Basin by checking out the series at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. New building permits are on hold in the fast-growing town of Severance after the North Weld County Water District imposed a moratorium on new water taps. Uncertainties over a small pipeline project appear to be behind the move, which is also affecting other nearby communities, including Eaton. This freeze on permits means that no current or new residential or commercial construction is happening. Here to untangle what's going on is Chris Wood. He's the editor and publisher of Biz West. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Erin. What exactly is the North Weld County Water District? It doesn't feel like necessarily a household name. Why is it in the news right now? Well, I don't think it is a household name, but it's it may it might become one here soon. The the North Weld County Water District is a special district that under Colorado law is considered a quasi-municipal corporation. It's considered a political subdivision of the state. And Northwell provides water services, including water treatment and delivery to a number of mostly smaller communities in the region, mostly in Weld County, including Severance, Eaton, Nunn, and Alt, uh, just to name a few. It also serves parts of Windsor and Timnath, uh, along with some unincorporated areas and even parts of Greeley and Fort Collins. Severance, for example, owns its own water, but it uses Northwell to treat and deliver that water. As to why it's in the news, that's a great question. Water districts don't get as much attention as municipal governments, but they wield enormous power. Their actions affect many thousands of people and businesses. With Northwell, the attention can be traced back to late September when it imposed a moratorium on new taps within the district, and that effectively brought a halt to building activity within several communities. Now, why did the district impose a tap moratorium? Well, it's a complicated question. The district cited what's known as the 1041 process in Fort Collins and Larimer County. North Weld has been working with the East Larimer County Water District on a five-mile stretch of pipeline known as NEWT-3. That's N-E-W-T-3. It would stretch from North Timberline Road in Fort Collins east into Larimer County, unincorporated Larimer County. The, the pipeline would help the district serve increasing demand for water in communities such as Severance and Timnath. But the new three pipeline became ensnared in the debate over the Northern Integrated Supply Project, which is known as NISP. Both Fort Collins and Larimer County have been using a regulatory process known as 1041 to influence or oppose NISP within their borders. So last fall, representatives of the North Weld County Water District and some area towns spoke before the Fort Collins City Council asking it to exempt their Newt 3 pipeline from the city's 1041 regulations, and the City Council agreed. But Larimer County, which has been rewriting its own 1041 rules, has not. 
So that prompted Northwell to impose a moratorium on new taps. It feared that it wouldn't be able to handle demand for water treatment and delivery without new three. Hmm. Well, what has been the kind of practical effect of this moratorium? Well, it's been pretty uh, devastating in the minds of town officials in Severance, for example. The tap moratorium has had the greatest effect in Severance, uh, which last fall in October imposed a complete moratorium on new building permits. And that decision has affected hundreds of building projects within the town and has effectively halted all new residential and commercial construction that wasn't already permitted. The town manager of Severance told me that the moratorium cost the town almost $2 million in revenue, which caused it to delay several capital improvement projects in its 2022 budget. Eaton also has what its town administrator calls an effective moratorium in which builders are being advised of the problem and encouraged to uh, delay applying for any new building permits. Some other communities, such as Timnath and Windsor, have been less affected because they obtain water services from other sources besides North Weld. Hmm, okay. This just seems like a bad time for this to be going on. I mean, Severance is one of the those really fast-growing communities in northern Colorado. How much of an issue is this in terms of that growth? It's an enormous issue. Uh, When I looked at the population data uh, for Severance and and Timnath, Severance from 2019 to 2020 was the fastest growing community in Northern Colorado. I think the Census Bureau has them at about 8,000 as of the 2020 census. I think the town uh, believes that it's it's higher than that, perhaps approaching 10,000. And Timnath has also been one of the fastest growing communities in the entire state as well. So it it has had uh, an enormous effect. Uh, And and I would say, Erin, there are some people that that like it. (laughs) There are some people who who are concerned about the rapid pace of growth. And you can go on social media and see comments uh, cheering uh, this, uh, the the Northwell moratorium and the subsequent moratorium in Severance. So it is is a very, uh, very big issue. Um, and it has really caused things to dry up in severance. And we'll, we'll see what progresses here in the next uh, month or two. But there is no new building permit being issued in the town of severance right now and, and Eaton as well. Well, we've talked a bit about growth and, and building, but what about the effect on industry in the area? Yeah, so uh, it is... Uh, it, it, It's very clear that uh, no new building permits are being issued. No new taps can be issued currently. So that does affect commercial development. Uh, It it really uh, restricts the town, restrains the towns in their ability to attract new industry. Uh, A company is not going to uh, come to uh, severance, uh, for example, if they can't be assured of having access to water. Um, And there are other uh, impacts on the uh, industries such as the dairy sector. One of the issues, in in addition to the exponential growth that we've seen on residential permits and and home building, is an enormous increase in the size and the number of dairies in the region. Well County is now the number six highest producing uh, county in terms of milk in the entire country. A lot of that relates to the Leprino cheese plant in Greeley. A lot of dairies have expanded and and emerged to help serve uh, that plant. And the dairy sector is one that is 
a, a very heavy user of water and any long-term inability of the Northwell district to serve any industry or residential will have will have a major major impact. Mm. Well, what happens next in all of this? Well, at this point, North Weld's moratorium uh, is in place until May 31. They have now extended it to May 31. But the district manager of the North Weld County Water District told me that the board will consider a partial lifting of the moratorium in February, but it will not lift it fully even if Larimer County allows Newt 3 to proceed. And that, uh, that tells me uh, something that the issues with North Weld and its ability to treat and uh, deliver water in the face of this very rapid residential growth, as well as dairy growth, is not limited to the Newt 3 pipeline. There are other capacity issues that almost certainly are at play here, and we don't fully understand what those are yet or what the solutions are. But uh, in the near term, uh, we uh, can expect at least a partial lifting of the moratorium. Uh, the manager would not tell me how how much, uh, uh, how many uh, taps uh, will be allowed under the new policy, but uh, the board of the district will consider that in February. Chris Wood is the editor and publisher of Viz West. You can read more at our website where you'll find a link to this story at KUNC.org. Chris, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me, Erin. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 